0: Okay, so we're in the book, walking through the book of Revelation, which I don't even have to tell you is a difficult book. Uh, we, we finished the seven seals, that is in chapter 6 and 7 and the beginning of 8. We read about the seven seals um, and how the opening of each of the seals represented a, a vision of, of something that was going to happen. And the first four seals referring to the turmoil that would come upon the earth during the time of, uh, between Christ's coming and his coming again, which is the age of which, in which we live, of course. And uh, in the fifth seal, we saw the saints in heaven crying out to God, how long, O Lord, before you take vengeance upon our persecutors? And then the sixth, those are the saints in heaven, of course. The sixth seal was about the beginning of the judgment day and the, the terror and the panic of those who were fleeing from the wrath of the Lamb. And then the seventh seal, surprisingly, was just a half hour of silence, which we took to be the, uh, the first moment of the final chapter of the story, God's appearing and making all things new. And then we started all over again with the seven trumpets, the first four of which sort of paralleled the first four seals by describing the cosmic troubles brought upon the earth during this age that we're in. And so today we come to the fifth trumpet. And then next week, the sixth trumpet. So we are in Revelation 8, the last verse, through Revelation 9, verse 12. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth... Or any green plant or any tree. But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months. But not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lions' teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come." So we have four parts here. The first verse and the last verse, 8:13 and 9:12 warns us about the severity of the last three trumpets, the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals. The first of these, the fifth seal, is what we're talking about today. The other two follow. In other words, if you thought that the first four seals were bad, wait till you hear about... I'm sorry. If you thought the first four trumpets were bad, wait till you hear about trumpets five, six, and seven. And then we hear... We see the blowing of the trumpet in chapter 9, 1 to 6. This yields a vision of a star falling to earth and given the key to a bottomless pit. So this star is a person. And as, it, as, the one who's given the, as this star opens the, the bottomless pit, great smoke arises, darkening the sun and the air. And then out of the smoke come locusts uh, on the earth, given by God power like scorpions. But they're told by God not to kill, but only torment those who did not have his seal on them. You remember in chapter 7 that God's people had a protective seal placed upon them. And only for five months. The torment the torment, was as intense as a scorpion's sting. Well, I just happened to have a daughter who lives in a land of scorpions. So I contacted her this week. I said, what is a scorpion's sting like? She says, well, what they say is that a scorpion's sting is worse than a woman's labor in giving birth. And remember, this is in a, in a place where there's no meds, no painkillers when a woman, and no doctors when a woman gives birth. So keep that in mind. The pe- it was so intense, the people wanted to die, but couldn't for some reason. Now, from similar passages, we gathered that this fallen star is Satan. Jesus uses virtually the same expression in Luke 10 18 when he says, I saw Satan as a star falling from heaven. You remember one of the ten plagues in the story of the Exodus was locusts, which were said to destroy the land, the vegetation, and all the fruit of the trees so that there was not a green thing left on the trees. That's Exodus 10. But here it's the opposite. Here there are locusts, but the locusts are told not to feed on the trees and the plants. These locusts feed on human souls. Not to kill them, but to torment them. But not all souls. God gives them power to feed only on the souls of non-believers. For you remember that seal that protected believers from these uh, calamities and then the third section 9 7 to 10 sounds a little bit like something you might have in a nightmare (laughs) it's a rather bizarre description of these satanic scorpions crowns of gold faces like humans hair like women Teeth like a lion, breastplates of iron, wing noise like the noise of many chariots running, rushing into battle, and a scorpion sting in their tails. And then finally, verse 11 tells us that they have a king, and that their king is an angel of the bottomless pit named Abaddon or Apollyon. Again, Referring to Satan apparently or at least one of his uh, chief helpers okay so there's a lot of horrifying details here of terrible torture of unbelievers but what's it talking about where does this fifth trumpet belong in the timeline of biblical eschatology of what the Bible tells us about what's going to happen In this age and in the age to come. So far in Revelation we've been presented with a pretty simple picture of the present and the future. The present age in in the New Testament, it's the age of the Spirit, the age of the gospel, the age of world evangelization, the age of also of tribulation and persecution. The age of grace, the age of loving our enemies. And the first four seals and the first four trumpets tell us that it's also an age of turmoil and conflict and war and bloodshed and tragedy and death. And then we have the return of Christ and the judgment day, which transitions to the age to come. The new heavens and the new earth, which is the age of resurrection. The age of justice for the wicked. The age of glory for believers. The age of the fullness of the presence of God with his people. Now most commentators associate this fifth trumpet with this present age that we're in. And they don't pay hardly any attention to the fact that it's said that it lasts for only one five months but that five months bothers me I can't think that he's telling us that this age which is uh, the same age is referred to as a thousand years in Revelation 20 is here called five months it seems to me that they're trying to cram a puzzle piece into a place where it just doesn't fit five months is too brief a time for this to describe either this pleasant age or the age to come. And there are other reasons why, also why I don't think it fits here. The fifth, this fifth trumpet is clumped with trumpets six and seven as being significantly worse than the first four which describe how terrible this life is. Second of all, we're told that this trumpet applies only to non-believers. Unlike all the other things that we're told about this day, except that they're uh, sealed, the believers are sealed. It's so bad that the people want to die. Now, you know, I know some people commit suicide, but you can't generally say that mankind is in so much pain that everyone wants to die. But not only do they want to die, but somehow they can't die. All of this just sounds like something's changed from the first four trumpets, the first four seals, to this vision in the fifth trumpet. I think we're talking about a different animal. There is another wrinkle in the revelation of what is to come, which we haven't yet come across in the book of Revelation, but which is coming. And I think that may be the answer to the dilemma. There is a short time, you see, between this present age and the age to come, when all hell breaks loose. After the last elect person is converted, the grace of God and the restrainer of evil are removed. And it seems to me that this is the only period in which we can unfit this fifth trumpet neatly in revelation 27 to 10 it tells us that at the end of the age satan will be unchained and will again deceive the nations and gather them for battle surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city so surrounding god's people ready to wipe them out and it actually says that this will only last for a short time This culminates a pattern in the Bible of a short time where things will get worse before Christ returns on the final day. The wicked will be in the process of taking out their anger on God's people when suddenly Christ swoops in to rescue them and win the day. And I've listed many scriptures here where you can find this kind of language in the notes. You know, the life of Jesus reflects this same pattern. Dominion over Satan until one day he's released. Remember, Jesus had a season of effective ministry in spite of struggles. But at the end of his life, there came a day of evil when Satan was unleashed. Culminating in the cross, of course. When even the... And then... When all looked lost, God intervened. And that same pattern, I think we're reliving as God's people. We're enjoying now a day of the expansion of the gospel to every people and language. Though it also includes struggles and persecutions. But then before the end, things will get worse just before Christ intervenes. Now we're not told very much about this brief period of the unleashing of evil before the return of Christ. But we do know a few things. We know that it will involve the deception of the nations. I believe this probably means that there will be no more conversions. That the the peoples of the earth, the non-believing world will be locked down by Satan. There will be no more conversions. Uh, people come to Christ the door will be closed we also know that it will involve a massive assault against the people of God and this makes sense for as their doom draws nigh their hatred of God intensifies and their hatred of God's people intensifies they burn with jealousy toward God and his people In one sense, their eyes are opened. Open to their hopelessness. Open to their imminent doom. Open to the fact that what believers have been saying all along is true. So, unbelievers slip into a rage. And the persecution of Christians is what results. This brief unleashing of evil... Is also probably associated with the coming of Look at Second Thessalonians two one through twelve. This, it seems to me, is the best place to fit the exceptional suffering unleashed in the fifth trumpet. On that day, not just evil, but misery will be unleashed in a fuller and more intense way. It will involve a kind of misery which believers don't experience. What misery could be as bad as a scorpion bite and yet not be fatal? Well, whatever happiness non-believers enjoy now is a result of God's common grace. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 17 when he's preaching to the Athenians. He says... God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of earth to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." As even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So you see, in this present age, God is graciously and generously extending his hand to mankind in the gospel. But when this age ends and his grace is withdrawn... Non-believers will be stung with the intense pain of unbridled hopelessness and despair, emptiness and futility, fear of divine retribution, and the miseries of a Christless life untempered by the pleasures and satisfactions of this world. Take a walk through the most horrible, putrid, living conditions on earth, the rotting prisons, the insane asylums, the depressing hospital wards, the foul-smelling slums. None of these can compare to the internal conditions that exist in every unbelieving human heart. Conditions which on that day will be brought to the surface and experienced without relief and without escape on that day. It's really a form of psychological suffering. Similar to the curse that God pronounced upon Israel by Moses right before they went into the promised land. If indeed they turned away from God and sought after idols. Listen to this. From Deuteronomy 28, 65 to 67. The Lord will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if it were only evening... And at the evening you shall say, if it were only morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. It seems to me that this offers the best explanation of what this fifth trumpet is all about. Now, in this... There are many things that God, I believe, designed to shake us and wake us as well as to comfort us. Even the worst struggles that we go through for a true believer are small compared to what we're reading about here. In other words, if you have Christ, you never need to feel sorry for yourself. the worst kinds of pain you will never experience. We moan and groan about how things are getting worse, but according to the book of Revelation, we ain't seen nothing yet. Someday, the Bible tells us, it will get a lot worse, at least for a short time. Someday, there will be a great unleashing of evil someday somebody is going to live through times that are harder than we can ever imagine if it's not us it will be our children or our grandchildren or future descendants and we need to help them prepare by being prepared ourselves if we don't show them how to trust God in the face of our little trials, how will they ever learn to trust God in the face of the greater trials they will be facing? So we need to build our houses on the rock, knowing that the storm is coming, not just for ourselves, but for those who come after us. I have to confess, much of my Christian life, a lot of my hope was built on the fact that it looked like things in the future were going to be okay. It didn't look like any terrible catastrophes were around the corner. But if our hope is built on this kind of assumption, our hope has no foundation. It is not Christian hope. If in this age we are surrounded by those who hate us because of Christ, this is par for the course. 2 Corinthians 1:8 to 10 tells us that we will experience deaths frequently, but also resurrections. There is no need for us to panic, no need for claustrophobia. Remember when Elisha the prophet was surrounded by the Syrian army. And his servant, when seeing this, was in a panic. But Elijah, Elisha saw something his, his servant was blind to. He said to him, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord, opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So, there was an intimidating human army. But surrounding them, there was a much greater heavenly army. And that's what we have to remember when we're facing intimidating things in this life too. If you... Sometimes get overwhelmed by all the terror, the brokenness, the horror, the injustice, the corruption, the immorality, the brutality of the world around us. Let this be a reminder that God is on his throne directing everything and that there's a great reversal of fortune coming. When every valley will be exalted and every hill and mountain made low. When the first shall be last and the last first. When God will exalt the humble but scatter the proud and bring down the mighty and send the rich away empty-handed. Nonbelievers will scoff at the threat of God's judgment. But on that day, they will be experiencing sheer terror. But maybe you wish for an age of world peace when mankind would be one. Well, I can understand that. It's natural to long for that. But though this concept is very appealing, it's not very biblical. In spite of many desperate attempts to construe the Bible to support this kind of thinking... The Bible consistently and persistently teaches us that in the end, mankind will be two and not one. History is not going to end with a negotiated settlement where we all lay down our weapons and our arguments and work together as one happy family. Whether we like it or not, history is going to end With Jesus returning and destroying his enemies. Jesus himself said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I come to set a man against his father. And a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Matthew 10. Now, any observer of humanity can see the human tendency to prize one's own group above other groups and set one's own group over against other groups. It's easy for many to view Christianity's elevation of Christ above all other gods as merely part of this same thing. And honestly, sometimes it is. Sometimes people are Christian not because their eyes have been opened to see the reality of Christ, but because they're just going along with what their group believes. But that doesn't take anything away from the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And sinful man left to himself will never accept Jesus as he is. This should not frighten true believers in Christ. None of this should. We are sealed by God himself, shielded from harm. Listen to what the Lord said to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, 18 to 20. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall harm you. Your names are recorded in heaven. It shouldn't frighten us, but it should probably wake us up. That's good. Big things are coming, and that calls for big prayers. Think about the disciples at Gethsemane. Jesus pleaded with them to pray, but they didn't. They slept instead. They were too relaxed about what was coming in the future in spite of everything Jesus had said. And because they didn't pray, they weren't ready for the coming temptations. And so they fell. They forgot what Jesus had said. They fled in fear. One even denied him. Can we learn from their failure? Jesus, like he Urge them to pray. He urges us to pray. He tells us difficult storms are coming. Pray that you might not enter into temptation. Pray that you might be ready. Are we going to listen? Or are we going to follow the same path that the disciples led right into the pit? This is a time for desperate prayers of faith. Gethsemane-sized prayers... So that when things get even worse, when the spirit is withdrawn and the enemy is unleashed, we'll be ready to stand. And one more thing about this passage. In this trumpet, we see Satan attacking unbelievers. did, Did you think that Satan wanted to give people pleasure? Well, that's what he wants us to think. But the opposite is true. A fisherman may look like he's trying to feed the fish because he keeps putting these delicious looking things at the end of strings into the water. But a fisherman doesn't want to feed the fish. A fisherman wants to catch and eat the fish. Satan wants to use pleasure to lure people away from Christ but his chief intent is our demise our misery our humiliation not just for believers but for all people he is seeking to devour so brothers and sisters we have we have faced and considered this difficult but uh, also troubling passage and uh, I hope that that, uh, in spite of its th- those two things that it is a blessing to you and that God will use it in your life it is, uh, the fact is we live in a day when one of Satan's great tools is to lull us to sleep and to make us think that uh, we can't do anything about the future but uh, God didn't give us these things for no reason. This piece of his word, it's not just sitting there so that someday we'll be able to look back and say, Oh, this, was, this is about now. No, this is for us to help prepare us for what is coming, not just in you know, our lives, but in the generations to come that we might have a sense of urgency about life and about the future because uh, when when the American dream is what we give to our children to help them have hope for the future it is completely inadequate let's pray Heavenly Father uh, we want to come to this passage with fear and trembling and uh, pray that you would use it, that we would not quickly forget it, for Lord, we know that uh, it's designed to trouble us, and we pray that we would not give in to the evil one in his attempts to lull us to sleep, but that we might be alert to your presence in our lives and in this world. And that we might see the evil of this world as something that you are bringing, uh, that you are ruling over and bringing to pass, working towards ultimate glory. Help us to be alert. Help us to be fervent. Help us to be urgent. And now, Lord, we thank you for the table of the Lord. What a joy it is, O Lord to come to the table and partake of the blessing of your body and blood. We pray that as we do so, dear Lord, that it might quicken us, that it might energize us and empower us. For Lord, we know that in ourselves we can do nothing, but if Christ is in us, we can do all things. We pray in his name. Amen.